Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome to the Core Anesthesia Podcast. I'm Sachi. And I'm Rhea. Together in this care plan series, we're diving into the intricate world of anesthesia, tackling those tough cases that keep you on your toes in the operating room. As experienced CRNAs with a passion for teaching and mentoring, we're here to break down the complexities of challenging procedures, giving you the need-to-know information. Each episode, we dissect specific cases, exploring anesthesia techniques, case considerations, pharmacology, and much more. We've teamed up with Cole and Tanner for these care plan episodes to share our expertise and insights. So whether you're a student aiming to build a strong foundation or a professional seeking advanced insights, join us as we navigate the intricacies of anesthesia practice. Hey guys, welcome to another care plan episode. Today, we're going to be discussing anesthesia for craniotomies. So we classify brain tumors based on their cellular origin. Glial cell tumors are the most common, uh, some examples being glioblastomas and astrocytomas. Typically benign tumors include pituitary adenomas, schwannomas, and meningiomas. During these cases, some of our biggest concerns are cerebral perfusion, controlling ICP and swelling, and avoiding interventions that delay the surgeon from doing a quick neurological assessment post-op. An awake craniotomy is an entirely different approach that we won't be covering in this episode. Today, we're going to be just focusing on the general anesthetic considerations for your typical asleep craniotomy. So Rhea, why don't you go ahead and kick us off with some preoperative considerations for these cases? Yeah, absolutely. Preoperatively, probably the most important thing that you need to do is to do a really good neurological assessment because you always want to have something to compare to after the surgery. You want to check their motor deficits. So seeing how strong they are in their upper and lower extremities and making sure that is bilateral, or if they're weaker on one side or in the lower extremities, you want to note that. You can also look at their notes from the neurologist, and that will also give you a lot of clues as to the type of symptoms that the patients have. They should continue their anticonvulsants. A lot of them are on Keppra and also steroids the day of surgery, but they should still hold their ACE inhibitors to prevent any kind of dangerous hypotension or decrease cerebral perfusion pressure during the case or CPP. We should be aware of how frequent their seizures are and how frequently they take their anticonvulsants to make sure that they don't miss a dose. One thing about anticonvulsants is that it causes enzyme induction. So that patient will metabolize their medications, their anesthetic medications, a lot faster, specifically muscle relaxants. So you're going to have to dose your muscle relaxants a lot more frequently. For me personally, I've seen it having, you know, I've had to dose that every 15 minutes sometimes. Another thing I like to tell people is that they might be intubated postoperatively. Not always. A lot of times we can't extubate patients, but sometimes we can't. 
As far as preparing for positioning, now sometimes we have patients in pins, sometimes they're in a sitting position, sometimes they're lateral. The location of the tumor will give you a really good clue as to what the positioning is. Lastly, if they are on chronic steroids, you do want to consider giving a stress dose to make sure that they don't have any refractory hypotension later on during the case. So the types of anesthesia, we can actually do these big craniotomy surgeries in a couple different ways, but why don't you talk about the the types of anesthesia for these craniotomies for tumors? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Perhaps the most common way that we do this type of procedure is going to be half gas, half TIVA, which is total IV anesthesia. Sometimes they want just complete total anesthesia, to, total IV anesthesia. And, and sometimes actually some surgeons are okay with just gas. So you, this is why it's really important to have this conversation with your surgeon ahead of time. A lot of that depends on really two things, how much mass effect or ICP issues the patient is having and what type of neuromonitoring they're going to do, whether it's SSEPs, MEPs, or some of those specialty monitorings like the visual court, you know, the auditory EPs. So having that conversation with those neuromonitoring technicians ahead of time to figure out what type of anesthetic you are going to give. But I will say the majority of the time I have done half gas, half TIVA for this type of case. And most of the time the monitoring is the SSEP. Perhaps my favorite or it's a you know mixture cocktail whatever that seems to be the most useful is to use sevoflurane as my gas a lot of times because these cases are so long if I use isoflurane it's just going to accumulate and then the timing gets really wonky especially if you've been in there for 12 hours I like sevoflurane a lot of places are getting away from using desflurane so we don't even use it anymore as far as the TIVA portion, always propofol, you know, everybody has that. And then, the, you know, I like Remy fentanyl now, but I have used sufentanil before and it works great too. But you have to know that the timing to turn it off is a lot different. So with the propofol drip, I'm usually at the minimum starting that at 100 mics per kilo per minute. And then for the Remy fentanyl, I usually start that around 0.1 mics per kilo per minute. Now, sufentanil. Sufentanil is dosed in mics per kilo per hour. So I think that's one of the very few medications that has that type of dosing, along with dexmedetomidine. And the way that Remy fentanyl and sufentanil are metabolized a lot differently. So remifentanil is not going to provide any kind of pain relief for your patient postoperatively. That you only have to think about remifentanil as being your anesthetic, not as your analgesic, even though it is classified as an opioid. Sufentanil, on the other hand, is a lot different. You have to turn off sufentanil at least 30 minutes prior to waking up. But the nice thing about sufentanil is you don't have to dose any other pain medication because that analgesic response, they're going to get that all throughout the postoperative period. So the trickiest part about the sufentanil is the timing, 100%. Mm-hmm. Whereas the remifentanil, you can keep them on the remifentanil literally until you are about to wake up or even as you're waking up, as long as the dose is, is small enough. So I like that better. I like knowing that I can predict my timing with the propofol, the remi, and the sevoflurane, And then I will try not to use opioids in the end for my 
analgesic, I usually try to use some kind of non-opioid like um, IV acetaminophen. Think also mm-hmm. that with craniotomies, the most painful part is actually the the getting through the skull and getting through the meninges. That's where the nerves are. The brain itself doesn't have nociceptors or nerve endings. So the brain itself cannot sense pain, which is why we can do awake craniotomies. So patients, believe it or not, despite going into their head, don't have an extreme amount of pain when they wake up. Mm-hmm. So that is the general, you know, gas, TIVA. You typically don't give any muscle relaxants for cases that have MEPs, but for SSEPs, it seems sometimes to be surgeon dependent. Other drugs that you're going to give are Decadron, usually 10 milligrams during the case, sometimes Manitol. So I, I personally like to have at least two to four bottles in the room of the Manitol. And sometimes you'll have to chase that with furosemide or Lasix to make sure that you, you know, the mannitol is going to extract the water out of the brain tissue so that it is not so swollen and edematous. The Lasix is going to get rid of that water from your body. To note, though, you want to keep patients normovolemic. So just because the patient urinates and gets rid of all that water, you still need to give IV fluid to replace back some of that intravascular volume that they lost. The whole point of those two drugs is to get rid of water from the brain tissue, not from circulation. Mm -hmm. And another thing that you might be asked to give is some kind of anticonvulsant during the the case. Um, Another thing is if you have to put the patient in pins, make sure you have a, a extra stick of propofol ready. And a lot of times they will ask you, is it okay to pin? But you have to give, you know, usually maybe 50 to 100 milligrams right before they put the pins in the head because the blood pressure is going to go way up after that happens. So we talked a little bit about the, about the fluid and the swelling in the brain. Is there anything else we want to do to try to sort of shrink the brain down? Yeah, I'm sure that everyone has heard of the Monroe Kelly Doctrine, where your cranium is this fixed space, and there are usually three things that are in there. You have brain tissue or water, and then you have blood and CSF. Those are like the the main things. So brain tissue or water, CSF or blood. And there's only so much room in that cranial space. Now, we want to decrease the tightness uh, of that space so the neurosurgeon has an easier time operating. And one of those things that we discussed was getting the fluid off, but also there we can hyperventilate patients to blow off the CO2 because in the brain, when you have a high amount of CO2, it causes vasodilation. It's the opposite systemically. So you have vasodilation in the brain because of this high CO2. That means you have a lot of blood in the brain. So you want to get that blood out of the brain. So you can hyperventilate patients. And what I typically do with the hyperventilation is I correlate my end tidal CO2 with my PCO2. So I will send off an ABG at the very beginning of the case. And as I'm drawing the blood, I will look at the monitor and see what the end title is reading at that time. So say I draw the blood, I read the monitor, it says 35. I write that down somewhere, I send it off. And then when I get back my results, it's usually a little bit higher than that. So when I get my, back my results and it says 40, then I know that, okay, 
there is a five point gradient between the end tidal CO2 and the PCO2. And so I'll ask the neurosurgeon, where do you want the CO2? I didn't ask him or her, where do you want the end tidal CO2? I mean, the actual body CO2. And if they tell me I want the CO2 around 30, that means I need to set my end tidal to 25 because I know that there's that five point gap. So that's something that I do in the beginning as well is make sure that I have the ventilation really dialed in. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. I love that. What mm-hmm. about IVs and positioning? Absolutely need at the minimum two very large bore IVs. Uh, also keep in mind that there are certain craniotomies that if you're in the sitting position and you, um, you have a possibility of having a venous air embolism, so I, if I know that I'm having that sitting position and that's a possibility, I will at least have a central line kit in the room, you know, just anticipating that this is, you know, it's an expectation that if you have a venous air embolism and you detect it, you're supposed to put in a central line and take out that air. Without a doubt, almost every craniotomy has an A-line. And you have to level that A-line to, to the level of the tragus because you are really, what you really care about is their cerebral perfusion pressure. You care about the perfusion in the brain. Whatever position that they're in, you want to make sure that that A-line is always at the level of the tragus. Sometimes patients can have other devices like lumbar drains in which you can remove CSF. So that other part of the Monroe Kelly doctrine to decrease that, that ICP, or they can even put in a ventriculostomy at the end of the case or an IVC. And what about positioning? I know we talked about the head of the bed being up, but when I've done these cases, (laughs) the head of the bed is always turned, you know, 180 (laughs) degrees, I don't have airway access. So are there some considerations from our point of view with having the head so far away? How many times where we've pulled the drape off and I'm like, okay, cool. The tape's like halfway off the patient's face and the ET tape's Mm -hmm. like out uh, (laughs) like an inch Mm -hmm. than when I put it in. Um, And always make sure you're right there holding onto your ET2 when you're undraping. We do not want mm-hmm. any extubations when the... That, dra- that drape is really sticky and literally they will stick it right on the ET tube. I'm like, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Out of all mm-hmm. the places you could have stuck it, you just stick it right on there. And when you're right, when they take the drapes off them, then they just rip it off. Totally. So I will actually take my ET tube and my circuit and I'll tape it to the bed frame mm-hmm. um, very close to the patient and kind of tuck it underneath so that it's very difficult for them to rip that circuit out, rip the tube out. Mm-hmm. How are we tr- managing the blood pressure with induction and like mostly emergence maintenance? You know, they're pretty steady, but it's really induction and emergence, that sympathetic st- stimulation that we're looking for. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You kind of alluded to it earlier when you're using short acting drugs like Esmolol to make sure you are not allowing their heart rate to spike really high. But I also really like nicardipine or cardine which is Mm -hmm. a calcium channel blocker that works specifically more on the vascular system. It's really quick on, fairly quick off. It's not as dramatic as nitroglycerin, so it doesn't give you like those really low lows. You can bolus it or you can have it on as a drip. So I almost always have that in the room ready to go and also have a little bit drawn up that I can bolus as the patient is starting to emerge because, you know, they just took out a brain tumor. That area of the brain is really friable, meaning it if the patient starts to strain, cough, buck as they're waking up, you can really like 
rip some blood vessels in your head from that increased pressure. So you just, you just want to make sure that you control the heart rate and the blood pressure. And I think that a lot of people at the end of the case are really tempted to give opioids or give propofol or give something else that is potentially sedating. But remember, we want a good neuro exam. So we don't want to give those types of medications. We just want to get them through this emergent period by giving more of those cardiac drugs so that you can get your neuro exam, get the patient stable, and then you can focus on those types of medications later. Okay. So what about wake up or emergence? Mm -hmm. The best thing to do is to have a very smooth, nice emergence. A lot of times your remifentanil can help you with that. If you decrease your dose really, really low, the patients can start breathing, but they're not going to cough, which is a great technique. Um, another thing that people can do is do a deep extubation. You have to plan for this. This is not something that you decide you're going to do halfway through stage two. Deep extubations involve keeping the patient under complete stage three, general anesthesia, getting the patient back breathing, and you are happy with the tidal volume, and then taking the tube out, and then letting them, they're still 100% under general anesthesia, and you're letting them emerge slowly on their own. It's a nice, easy wake up. So nice, smooth wake up. Don't let them cough, but also you want to make sure that they don't develop any kind of post-operative nausea and vomiting, making sure that you're also giving them Zofran at the end of the case, just like we do for everybody else. You might have to take them for a post-operative CT scan. Sometimes they want that before the patient even wakes up. So the institution that I was at, the CT scan was in the operating room. It was a really, really fancy operating room. So you you have to make sure you ask them ahead of time, are you planning on doing a post-op CT scan because you don't want the patient awake and moving around for them. And what about some post-operative considerations? Mm -hmm. The first thing and foremost is to immediately do your neurological exam. And if there are any differences or changes, changes in orientation or changes in motor, whether, you know, you notice they were bilateral before, now you notice that the right side is really, really weak in the arms and legs. These are things you need to report right away to the neurosurgical team. Another thing is when you go to transfer the patient, a lot of times they're going to go to an ICU, a neuro ICU. You have to be ready for ICU transport, just any, just like any other ICU patient, making sure that you have your Ambu bag, your intubation equipment, and all of your emergency drugs that you might need. And especially if you're, if you don't have an acardipine drip going, it's not a bad idea to just bring whatever downer drug that you have, nicardipine, nitroglycerin, just bring it with you. Because without a doubt, the patient's blood pressure starts to creep up, especially if you've extubated them deep. It's like they're starting to blow off that gas, right? As you're mm -hmm. rolling. Yep. So mm -hmm. just kind of plan ahead for that. But all right, I think we covered a lot. Is there anything else you'd like to add about craniotomies? No, I don't think so. I think that if um, you follow a lot of these principles, it will get you through the majority of asleep craniotomy cases. Like you said before, awake craniotomies, whole different beast <laughs> of aesthetic. Mm -hmm. But as far as general craniotomies for brain tumors, this is a really great plan that's going to get you through the case. All right. We'll see you guys on the next one.